God, we invite you right now to just speak to our hearts this morning. And God, open our eyes to be able to see truths that are in your word. Open our ears to be able to hear and respond. And God, help our hearts to be humble enough to be able to admit areas that were wrong, admit areas that we need to change so that you be glorified and we'd find great joy in you. And uh, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preface this morning by saying that what we're going to be looking at here today is kind of an interesting uh, climactic tension in the story. The story of Ruth has, for the most part, been about a story of a young lady who has had her husband die. Uh, she's a widow. She's also infertile, meaning she's, she was married for 10 years, never had a baby. She also is a foreigner, so she's living uh, in a foreign land, uh, not having any men in her life, in a culture that highly esteems and, and uh, elevates men. And if you're a woman living in that culture, you basically really had no voice, you were very vulnerable, and uh, in a lot of ways, you were kind of the subject of a lot of ridicule, and it was dangerous for you to live. And the story of this book is actually about a lady named Ruth, her and her mother-in-law named Naomi. Uh, they've both gone through great tragedy, great loss. Uh, they've lost both of their husbands. Uh, they both uh, have not, they don't have any kids to help carry on their family name. They're both very vulnerable. They don't have any money. They don't have any uh, land. They don't have any property. There's no relatives there. There's no older brother to go to, no um, grandpa or no dad. Any other male is in their life to actually help them. So these two women are very vulnerable. And yet in the story, what we see is that God is actually working and moving throughout this whole storyline. And God introduces into the story a man by the name of Boaz. And Boaz kind of becomes, in some ways, kind of this knight in shining armor where we are all excited to meet Boaz because he becomes this formidable uh, uh, guy that's able to actually marry Ruth and help save the family farm and help really kind of turn the whole story around and bring great redemption throughout the whole story. And it, it becomes this great point where the moment we're introduced to Ruth, uh, Ruth or uh, Boaz in the story of Ruth, we're all excited. We're like, this is great. Boaz is going to save the day until we come to chapter 3 where everything kind of meets this uh, climactic tension, where everything almost comes to a screeching halt because there is this uh, unscripted moment that you read and you're like, no, it's just not supposed to go that way. It can't go that way. It's kind of like in Princess Bride, um, when, when Fred Savage, you know, he's, he's you know, the grandkid, grandson, listening to the story and the grandpa is telling it, and all of a sudden he comes to the point where, you know, Princess Buttercup is, you know, forever doomed to marry Prince Humperdinck. And at the moment, just before they're about to say their vows, like Fred Savage stops. He's like, well, wait, wait, like, this can't be. I, you know, he's, she's supposed to marry Wesley, not, not Humperdinck. And he's just like, he's like, that's not fair. And the grandpa's like, life's not fair, you know. He's like, but you're not reading the story right because what's happened is we've you know we've fallen in love with you know buttercup and wesley and we're like they're definitely just right for each other and how how could this tension come into the story this certainly can't be part of the script right that's what fred savage says he's like this you're not reading the story right and that's what happens in the book of ruth is we have this this moment of wait a minute this it 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 looks as if Boaz may not be the rightful guy to marry or to help or to redeem this family and to bring about a sense of redemption and salvation to this family that's really suffered a lot. So in other words, what I really want to try to understand and look at this morning is uh, a larger theme throughout the whole book is how 
how do Ruth and Naomi and the others in the story, the other characters in the story, deal with these unscripted moments of life? And it seems as if the story of Ruth is filled with all of these things. From the most simplest ones like we're going to read about today, where it seems as if Boaz may not actually end up becoming uh, Ruth's husband. But even worse, where both Naomi and Ruth are described to us as having gone through great loss because they suffered deaths in their family, their loved ones, the ones who aren't supposed to die, the ones who are supposed to bring joy and comfort and help and hope and strength and safety, they're gone, they die. They're no longer there. And the storyline, the, uh, the narrator of the story doesn't give us a lot of perspective as to the deep, raw emotion that they feel. For some reason, the story writer just kind of omits all those little fine details. And I think probably because the story writer knows it doesn't need to elaborate on those things because we already feel those things. We already feel those things for them. We know to some degree what it feels like to suffer an unscripted moment. We're like, that's not supposed to happen that way. This was not intended to be, this was, was what we planned. You know, this was, the circumstance was not what we had anticipated. We didn't wake up expecting for this to happen because it was supposed to happen this way or this disease wasn't supposed to take place or take over my body or this divorce wasn't supposed to happen. We were supposed to live happily ever after. Or this child that we had hoped to be completely healthy isn't healthy. Or this disease wasn't supposed to strike me at this age. Or I wasn't supposed to have lost my job because it seemed as if everything was working up to it. Where it just seemed like that was the perfect moment. And then all of a sudden, everything just, just crumbles down. That's the story of Ruth. But I've said this before, that the story of Ruth is actually a microcosm of the story of the Bible. Because that's what we see throughout the entire Bible. It's this constant storyline of things should be one way, but they're not. They're broken. There should be beauty, but instead of beauty, we see ashes. There should be fidelity, but instead of fidelity, we see betrayal. And this seems to be the ongoing, consistent storyline where there should be life and joy. Instead, there's death and sorrow. It's the story of the Bible. But there's another, what we would call a mega theme over all of that that's being interwoven in the whole Bible. And it's that God actually cares about all these things. You know, today marks uh, the 10th anniversary of 9-11. I'm sure most of you can actually remember exactly where you were when you heard about what had happened. And up to 3,000 people died and then those who didn't die, those who were left to survive, were forced to basically try to make some answers as, out of what happened. How did this happen? I mean, we were supposed to be an invulnerable country. We were supposed to be a nation that these types of things don't happen to us. If they do happen to us, it's not on our soil, not underneath our noses, not right square in the middle of our forehead. These types of things aren't supposed to happen. They're not scripted. They're not planned for. They're unexpected. But what do we do with these things? What's God trying to do through these circumstances in us, through us, for us? What lessons can we learn? And these are the types of questions that the book of Ruth kind of raises, uh, at least in the background. How do we go on? Because oftentimes when we find ourselves confronted with these types of things, whether it be kind of on a national level, a national 9-11 or a ground 
zero type event or a personal ground zero event. I mean, most of us, in a lot of ways, have experienced to some degree some form of a ground zero event in our lives where, again, the, the worst possible scenario that may have happened in our life actually happened and transpired. But again, for some of you, you're like, it hasn't really quite happened to me. The reality is, is at some point, it will happen to all of us. And I don't mean to say this like to be a downer where you're like, oh, I wonder if there's other churches in town that are like more happier and, you know, like this is a bummer and, you know, this is not good. I'm sad. I want to die. And, and, and the reality is, is that it's, it's just part of the fact of life. We live in a world that even though it's beautiful, it's commingled with, with, with ugliness. We live in a broken world. The, the, the Bible is going to tell us the reason why is this perfect world that God created has been corrupted because of sin. Sin that we've committed, sin that's been committed against us, it's the world that we live in. And yet the storyline of the Bible is that God has a plan to bring about redemption. But in the meantime, as we're trying to live out in the midst of this pain and this hardship and these unscripted moments, how, how do we keep a sense of equilibrium whereby as we go through these circumstances in life, that we don't completely become part of the problem? See, here's what happens. We oftentimes become part of the problem. That when we find ourselves confronted with things that we don't understand, we try to make sense of them, and oftentimes the answers that we conclude, that we come up with, is that, oh, it's somebody else's fault. I mean, do you remember that? The first few months after 9-11? Oh, it's, it's, it's Muslim people. They're the problem. It's Arabs. They're the problem. So there was this radical, like, mentality that had, kind of polarized a lot of Americans. Like everybody, I, mean, I remember going on an airplane shortly after that, and I just, I remember thinking like, you know, could that be, you know? And, you know, but the reality is we've had, we have 10 years under our belt. And it, we've, we've been able to prove the fact that no, the problem is not out there in Arab nations or Arab countries. Actually, the problem is even a, ho- a whole lot more grotesque than that because we're a part of the problem. I mean, we've proven Guantan- Guantanamo Bay. We've got our own baggage. We've got our own issues. We've got our own wickedness that we've got to deal with. We've even seen with kind of the whole meltdown of the economy. The irony there is it came in the package of a bunch of white guys who are well-educated beyond their means and very greedy. So it's not out there is the problem. The problem really is a whole lot more inside of us that we struggle with the sense of evil and wickedness. And how, how do we deal with it? How do we make sense of it? Because at some point it will crush us. At some point we will become a part of, of, of a problem cycle that it creates. How do we keep some sense of equilibrium and poise, trusting God, not being completely part of the problem, not becoming jaded by the problem? Because sometimes when we try to make sense of these things, we become, you know, there's, uh, there's a guy by the name of um, uh, Victor or something or another. I can't remember the guy's name right now, in the space in it right now. It might come to me. But again, remember, I might be having one of those moments as well. well I forget things. But the point of the matter is, this guy uh, lived during the Second World War. He was a Jew. He lived in Austria. And he was actually a psychologist. And he was taken into a concentration camp and, um, in, in Auschwitz. 
And he went into this camp kind of uh, observing, because remember back around the 50s or so, uh, Austria, Germany, kind of led the world in a lot of ways of this psychoanalysis type world, and trying to figure things out, you know, study people and whatnot. This guy actually goes into the concentration camp as a Jew, and he's observing all these other fellow Jews and how they're reacting to this, this ground zero moment of their lives. No one scripted in their life, go to Auschwitz. No one scripted in their life, let's go to a concentration camp and work ourselves to death, literally. But a lot of people had different responses to this. And here's what he said. He said, some people found themselves in states of denial or perplexity. Some people resorted to fear. They became radically paralyzed by fear. Some people became full of fight. They wanted to fight people. They were angry, and they put up a big fight in there. They resisted. Other people became very cynical. In a lot of ways... This is how we actually respond oftentimes when we're trying our best to make sense out of life's difficulties and pains. And that might be where you're at today. You're trying to figure out what's happened in your life. You're trying to make sense of it. You're trying to understand your own personal ground zero. Your own life's upset. Again, you didn't script this moment. It wasn't expected to happen. It seemed like everything else was going along a particular path and all of a sudden something went this direction where you weren't expecting it to happen. How do you deal with those types of things? Because here's what happens, is that oftentimes we become just like he described. We become the cynic. We become people that are just, you know, full of anger. We fight. We just want to, you know, accuse somebody, attack somebody, kill somebody, demonize somebody. But what we see in the Bible, what we even see in Ruth, is even though she has gone through many life's tragedies, even though we find ourselves in the story that we're going to read in a second here, confronted with something that was completely unexpected, she's able to maintain herself with some sense of poise. She's not all jaded and bitter and cursing God and freaking out and just, you know, going ballistic. She's not. Even greater than that, we look at Jesus. Jesus finds himself confronted by all sorts of difficulties in this life. All sorts of sin destroy Jesus. Not sin that he commits, sin that's committed against him. And yet Jesus is able to walk with a sense of equilibrium, confidence in God, trust in God, without being destroyed, without being overcome. So again, my point is not saying, look, if you're a Christian, you always have just like this happy, clappy attitude, and you're always just like singing songs, and everything's great in your life, and if it's not going great, you act as if it is great. It's not about being fake. Because that only gets you so far too. But it's about really learning how to grieve because what Paul's going to say in Thessalonians, he's going to say, look, we're going to grieve. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we don't grieve as others, as those who have no hope. So here's what Paul's going to say. Look, we, even Christians, we grieve. There are times when we will grieve and we will grieve deeply but the grief that we have, even though it's deeply felt, full of pain, it's different. It's grief that somehow birthed out of a sense even of a knowledge of hope. When Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, remember his good friend died, he's been dead for four days. Martha and Mary both approach him, and they basically ask Jesus the exact same question. Jesus gives two radically different answers to both of them. To one, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. You know, and uh, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he says, those who trust in me, even though they die, they'll, they'll live again. And then to the other, 
You know what Jesus does? He breaks down and cries. And it's not just any type of crying. The actual original Greek word that's used there, most of your Bibles don't translate it this way because a lot of scholars and translators who are working on this, they don't know how to translate this. It seems so uncouth for the Son of God to cry in this type of way. But the actual type of word that's used there is that Jesus felt such raw emotion, he like snorted. The sense of like raw, primal, just pathos, feeling, emotion. That's what Jesus did. So here he is at the tomb of Lazarus. On the one hand, he's preaching truth. He's communicating truth on the resurrection life. On the other hand, he's feeling the most incredibly deep pain. The most ironic thing about all this is he knows within five minutes he's going to perform a miracle and raise Lazarus from the dead. So put it this way. If you show up on the scene and you have a bag full of tricks, and you know what you're going to be doing in five minutes. You know, no matter what the, you know, no, you know, no matter what's going on right there, you know you're going to change the outcome because you have the power and the ability to do it. Would you show up and start weeping with everybody? Probably not. You'd be like, hey, don't cry. I'm going to change it all. It's all good. I'm here. Like, I got a trick up my sleeve that none of you have ever seen yet. Lazarus, rise. Like, he doesn't do that. He shows up on the scene and he communicates truth, but also feels deep pain. Because Jesus is his perfect comforter. He knows how to commingle both truth and pain at the same time. And good Christians, people who know God, who understand the gospel, we do grieve. We feel pain. But we feel pain in a way that's not divorced from hope. So again, the real issue is like, how do we feel pain? How do we grieve? How do we go through these moments in life when we experience either national ground zeros or personal ground zeros and we actually are able to come out of those things with a sense of equilibrium and hope and stability this is what i see with ruth okay i want to read the story for you i'm going to read a little bit back uh just kind of get a little bit of the context here i'm going to start about verse six just so that you can understand a little bit of what's happening here and uh it says this so she, that's Ruth, she went down to the threshing floor. Now, this has been after kind of this ongoing, on-brewing relationship between uh, her and this guy by the name of Boaz. And Boaz is really significant to the story because Boaz actually happens to be a, a relative of Naomi. This is really important because it means that now with uh, the crosshairs fixed on Boaz, it means that there is potential like I said, to buy back the family farm, there's potential to, uh, to bring resurrection and life back into this whole family again that suffered so greatly. And uh, so this is why Boaz is so important to the story. But not only that, Boaz is also really important because it seems like Boaz actually really likes Ruth. In other words, it's not just like he's cold-hearted and mean and cruel and this like evil, wicked guy that's just like, you know, Ruth's like, can I, can I get some help? And he's like, no, I'm Boaz, you know, and I don't help people. And, you know, he's like, yeah, I'd be happy to help you. You're, you're an amazing woman. I mean, you're out fighting for the cause of your, you know, hurting, saddened, depressed grandma. And you're a foreigner. I mean, there's no expectations on you. You're not even Jewish. And yet you're living like a better Jew than other Jews that I've known. And Boaz is like, of course I'm going to jump on your cause. You're an amazing woman. So he blesses her with lots of grain and lots of help and lots of promises. And so uh, uh, Ruth is going to go back to this threshing floor now, and she's going to basically make a proposal to Boaz and ask him to marry 
her, which is, again, we looked at this last week. I'm not going to talk about this this week. So some of you that are like, whoa, wait a minute. Women can ask men to marry them? Um, you just listen to last week's message. All right, verse 6 says this. Uh, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And then when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and covered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the, men, uh, the man startled and turned over and beheld a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness even greater than your first, in that you have gone that you have not gone after any of the young men, either rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Uh, and in verse 12 is where the whole storyline kind of takes an uh, unexpected turn. Verse 12, he says, And now it is true, I am a redeemer. Yet or but uh, there is a redeemer nearer than I, which basically means, yes, I am a redeemer, but there's somebody else up totem pole who's got higher rank than me. In other words, I'm outranked by this other guy. So you're reading this story, and you're like, oh, I'm rooting for Boaz. He just seems like the perfect guy. He's shown kindness and favor to, to Ruth, and he seems to be like the perfect guy. And it seems as if there's like this, uh, this spark of you know, romance going on between the two of them that you know, Ruth seems to like Boaz, and Boaz seems to have some sort of fondness for Ruth, and, you know, we, we just get settled on really liking Boaz and rooting for them and feeling like this is a great story. All of a sudden, we're told of this other guy. I love it, because a lot of the other commentators, uh, they just, they don't, there's no name for this guy, so they kind of made up, like, their own, like, title for him. Mr. No Name. So we're going to just call him Mr. No Name because uh, we don't know who he is. He's not really significant to the story other than to create this moment of tension and to create this moment of, well, wait a minute, what's going to happen next? So that's what Boaz goes on to say. He says, remain tonight and in the morning I will redeem you. Uh, he says, in the morning I will redeem you. Good. Uh, if he will redeem you, good. If not, then I will do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And so she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. In verse 15, he says, and then he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it out and measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and then she came to her mother-in-law and she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, Those six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for this man will not rest, but, uh, will, not rest, uh, but will settle the matter today. So the storyline, again, gets very full of this, this tension as this other guy comes in the scene. We don't know who he is, but Boaz says, look, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I will do everything in my power uh, to redeem you. Now, the next chapter that we get into, we'll get into the next few weeks, next week actually, and we'll see that, you know, Boaz, he's slick, man. This guy's got some tricks up his sleeves. He's going to throw down as he goes on and basically takes on this other guy, Mr. No Name, and uh, it's, he, he gets pretty brutal, but at the end of the day, 
Boaz knows what he wants, and Boaz knows he wants to be Ruth's redeemer and ultimately Naomi's redeemer as well. So he is determined to basically make that happen. And so one of the things I really want to try to look at is Boaz tries to bring a sense of comfort to Ruth. There's at least three things that Boaz does within the text. I want to look at them real quick. The first thing that Boaz does is he speaks a word of peace to her. Verse 11, here's what he says. He says, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. So the very first thing that even before Boaz begins to share with Ruth this other unexpected twist, he communicates to her. And he's like, look, don't be afraid. Um, because at the end of the day, I'm going to do everything I can in my power to help you out. Now, the funny thing is, is that obviously Boaz already anticipates the fact that she's going to become fearful. That this might be a common reaction. In a lot of ways, again, it's a common reaction that you and I might have. When we find ourselves in circumstances that we don't control, because really at the end of the day, we love control, right? We love control. Is that true? Amen? Like, we love to be in control. That's one of the reasons why a lot of times we have such conflict with other people. It's because we really, really love control and really, really resent relinquishing any of it, all right? And, and one of the problems is, is that when we feel as if we're out of control, when we feel as if we don't have ability to control the circumstances or control the scenario or control the things that are unscripted in our life, we feel oftentimes fear. That's where fear oftentimes arises. Fear can come for a number of reasons. Fear can oftentimes arise because we lose control. Fear can oftentimes come as well because we fear losing something that we desperately love. We desperately love. It could be a family member. We desperately love that family member, a spouse, a child, a friendship, a job, a house, property, something, a career, career path. And all of a sudden, somehow it seems like in a moment, all that can be threatened. In a moment. But the reality is that's the world we live in. This is one of the reasons why the Bible is going to say over and over and over again, be careful what you put your heart on. You understand that? We've got to be careful of that. Because the problem for us is that we are oftentimes prone to take our heart and put them on things that are fragile, that break, that can't sustain us. If you live ultimately for a job or for a career, and that's what you put your heart on, that becomes an ultimate desire in your heart, an ultimate thing, an ultimate passion, something that you're looking for, all your hope and joy somehow linked to that job. If you lose that job or the threat of losing that job happens or comes into your life, you're not just sad, you're devastated. Same thing with a boyfriend or girlfriend. Let's say if you're not married, you got a boyfriend or girlfriend, and somehow you think that life itself arises from this relationship. Life itself arises from this relationship. As long as things are going good, you feel full of joy. Everything's great in your life. You feel happy. The moment any hint of trouble arises, any sense of insecurity, I don't know if he likes me, right? He, he, he didn't come to the movie with me. You know, I don't know. You know, there's, there, all of a sudden, there's a sense of insecurity that arises. And that insecurity is, is, is actually a destabilizing moment in your life. Where it's not just like, oh, we'll get over it, I'll move on. It's as if your life has now been rocked by two jet planes. Right? It's your own 9-11. 
It's your own ground zero. Your whole life has been rocked. There's nothing wrong with finding joy in God's gifts. That gift can be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be a job. It could be a talent. It could be an ability. It can be a number of things. There's nothing wrong with finding great joy and delight in the gifts that God gives. In fact, all the gifts that God gives us, all creation was given as a gift so that it would enhance and elaborate and embellish our worship back to the Creator. But here's the problem. We make creation itself an ultimate thing, and it replaces God. We fix our hopes and give our heart away to things that will ultimately, in the end, let us down and break us. That's the problem. That's the problem. So the point that I want to make with this is that when we see here in the story that Boaz says, listen, be at peace, don't be afraid. He wants you to realize that he's going to do everything in his power to help her. The second thing that we see that Boaz does is he makes his promise of redemption. Verse 11, he actually does it twice. In verse 13, he makes his promise of redemption that his goal, his ultimate goal, is to completely fulfill everything that he's promised. He promises to do everything in his power to redeem her. And then it's kind of funny because later on in verse 13, he says, but if, if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And here's what he says. Why don't you just lie down and sleep till morning? Really? Are you kidding me? Like, like, Look, your whole life may not go the way that you planned. Take a nice rest. It's like sleepless in Bethlehem. It just doesn't work like that. Like, can you imagine? That is one of the most disturbing moments in the whole story. She's laying there. Her eyes are wide awake. She's like, I thought I was going to get married to this guy, and I thought it was going to be the perfect life. I thought I was going to have a baby, and we were going to live in Bethlehem. All of a sudden, in a moment, he's like, I, you know, you might be end up marrying some dude that's actually older than me. He might be 90, even more grumpier. And you might be poor and not have anything. But you know what? You'll be redeemed. She's like, that's not what I wanted. I wanted Boaz. And we wanted Boaz. We're all like, this just isn't right. This isn't fair. And we hear grandpa in the background. Life's not fair. Anyways, the point of the matter, as we get back into the story, is that we, we see that Boaz just makes his promise is that I, I will redeem you. The third thing, I love this, in verse 15, Boaz says, let's read it, it's a great passage. He says, and he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out, and she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley, and he put it on her, and she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And what I find amazing here, and then she said, and she told her all that the man had done for her, but doesn't describe any of the actual events. I mean, I'm sure that they, they were spoken. I'm sure she told her mother-in-law that, you know, there's an actual another redeemer that's even closer than Boaz. But none of that comes out by the narrator. The only thing that comes out from the narrator is something that we weren't told earlier in the story when Boaz did this. But here's what she says. She said, for Boaz said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So here's what Boaz is doing. Is he's basically saying, I'm speaking a word of peace, and I'm giving my promise, but to demonstrate how far I will go, I will actually give you a gift, and I will, and basically, in this case, it, it, it amounts to six 
measures of grain, again, which a lot of us, we don't know exactly what that means. Some commentators believe it might be upwards of 90 pounds of grain. If you remember the first time Boaz actually gave grain to Ruth, it's probably around 30 pounds. And for those of you that just think Ruth is as lightweight, dude, she carried 30 pounds of grain back to her mother-in-law. Now, this time, you know, a few days later, a few weeks later, she carries back 90 pounds of grain. Ruth is burly, all right? She's strong. She's healthy. She's very feminine. She's an amazing woman, all right? And she carries this grain back to her mother-in-law, and here's what she says. Boaz wanted to make sure that you did not feel empty-handed. He wants you to know that his promise, his commitment to redemption, and his challenge to your fears is actually anchored in a gift. It's not just empty words. He's not just saying things just to get you off his back and just kind of, you know, it'll be all right. They're not just empty words. There's substance to it. Uh, The great preacher from London uh, from the 1800s, a guy by the name of uh, Charles Hayden Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, and talking about this story in the book of Ruth, actually looks at Boaz and talks about Jesus as being our even greater Boaz. In a lot of ways, there's a lot of truth to that, a lot of parallels of Boaz to Jesus. But one thing I want to caution you is that sometimes when we read our Bibles, we like to get all metaphorical. We love to try to find direct uh, carryovers of certain characters in the Old Testament and say, well, gosh, Boaz is straight across the board Jesus. And, you know, but the reality is that there are moments when Boaz resembles Jesus. There's also moments when Boaz doesn't necessarily resemble Jesus. And so e- even though we've we got to be careful about that. So the point that I would make is that I think there's a lot of truth to that. There's no doubt that Jesus is an even greater Boaz. Because in reality, you look at Jesus' life And one of the things that we learn from Jesus' life is when he comes into this earth, he comes to a bunch of people that are broken. He comes for people that are broken. He comes for people that that are destroyed and crushed and trying to figure out answers to the big heaping questions that life throws upon them, the big oppressions that keep kind of dominating and controlling them, the difficulties difficult and hard questions that keep oppressing people in this world. Jesus comes into this world and says, I want to help you. I want to take care of these situations. And, you know, it's very interesting. One of Luke's uh, accounts in the Gospel of Luke, he describes a story that several people come to Jesus. It might have been around Luke 13, Luke 12 or 13 or something. Like that. They come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, you know, who, whose sin was it that caused this guy to be blind? And Jesus said, it wasn't his sin, it wasn't the sin of his parents. But God was doing something to bring glory to himself. And then Jesus goes on to say, and he says, you know what? Uh, a few weeks ago, when that tower of Siloam fell down and crushed you know, a handful of people, killed them. You know, a lot of rumors are going around saying, well, the reason why that tower fell is because those people were sinners and the other people weren't sinners. You know, the problem is oftentimes when we try to find answers to life's most challenging and difficult unscripted moments, Most of the answers we come up with don't make us better people. They make us really bitter. They leave us feeling very cynical. They make us full of anger. We don't become better. I would say they actually dehumanize us. They make us less than human. When the purpose of the gospel, God is actually seeking to restore humanity from its fallenness. But oftentimes the answers that we grasp 
the answers that we reach out to find and lay a hold of and bring into our hearts, the things that we set our hearts upon and say, this is the path I'm going to take in response to these calamities in my life or these hardships that I'm faced with, oftentimes leave us less than human. A person that's bitter, that's less than human. That's not how God wants us to live person who's bitter, he can't experience the joys of playing with a young child, enjoying life. He's bitter. person who's cynical stops trusting people. Once you stop trusting people, you can't get back into relationships. How do you do that? A relationship where you have no trust for anybody else, that's broken. It's dysfunctional. It doesn't work. But God wants to repair. God wants to restore. And Jesus comes into this world to take upon the sin that's destroying and dehumanizing people to, make, to bring about some sort of redemption through it all. This is why Jesus becomes the better Boaz. Jesus himself, like Boaz, comes and he speaks a word of peace. Have you noticed that oftentimes in Jesus' earthly ministry, he was always turning to his disciples and saying, Peace, be still. Do not be afraid. Why? Because his disciples always were. Right? Whenever God comes to us and says, be still. Be at peace. It's because we are freaking out. We're full of anxieties. We're stress cases. We don't know where to turn. And God just says, don't be full of anxiety. Don't be stressed. Don't be freaking out. Why? The answer that Jesus is always going to give because God's not freaking out. God's not stressing. God's not losing it. God's in control. And Jesus is saying, anchor your life. Fix your heart on. Let your heart be released in its fullness upon God. See, one of the problems that sometimes, I don't know, maybe the evangelical church, modern day evangelical church, is, you know, we think, gosh, you know, People have too much passion. They're too much passionate for all sorts of stuff in this world. And, you know, we just got to calm down our passions. And the reality is, is that I think the problem is that we don't have enough passion. The passion that we do have is for the wrong things. We're passionate about things that really don't matter. Things are not worthy. Things that will ultimately let us down. When in reality, if we release our heart and our passion upon God, who is worthy, that's where life comes. That's where true joy comes in. And so what the writer, of, you know, throughout the rest of the book in, is wanting to try to convey to us that it's okay to release our love upon God because God can sustain us. God will sustain us. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid. John chapter 14, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So if you see in that verse, what Jesus is trying to say, he's not just saying, look, stop being afraid. But he's basically saying, let your fear be replaced by peace. Because it's not enough to just simply say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. All right? You can't just look at your life and find yourself in the middle of, of an unknown circumstance where you don't know the outcome to be like, just don't be afraid. What you have to do is replace that fear with peace. And that's why Jesus says, don't be afraid. Let my peace replace and fill you. Let it be an anchor for you that tethers you to my promises and ultimately to my work of redemption. 
Second thing that we see that Jesus does himself make these promises of redemption all throughout the New Testament. Jesus is saying, I'm here for a mission. I'm here on a purpose. I'm here because it's part of the script. God has called me to be brought into this world to be a redeemer. In many ways, the way God rescued uh, Israel from the Egyptians um, and redeemed them, God says, uh, Jesus is going to communicate constantly that in the same way God has sent me to be and bring about your redemption from the oppression, not of the Egyptians, but of a far greater oppression, the oppression of sin. I've come to redeem you. And then finally we see Jesus offering this gift, just like Boaz gives a gift, and as if Boaz offers his gift to say, look, just in case there's any question about my promise, my commitment to redeem you, just in case there's any prom- or question about my call, my challenge to your fears. He says, here's a gift. This gift will speak volumes to you about my intentions. In the same way, and again, in John chapter 14, Jesus says this, the Holy Spirit whom the Father has sent in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance, bring to remembrance all the things that I have said to you. My peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. I think Jesus' whole point is that the gift that I will be giving to you of the Holy Spirit he will come and take up residence inside you. And as he lives inside you, he will constantly cause your mind to be reminded of what I will do for you on the cross and what I've accomplished for you on the cross. That I did this for you for free. I didn't charge you anything. I did it because I was motivated and moved by love. I took upon myself your pain, your shame, your hardship, your trouble, your difficulties, your anxieties. I bore those things upon myself Therefore, you can have peace. The reason why ultimately we can find and say that we can have this confidence that we will never be ultimately forgotten or ultimately forsaken is because Jesus himself said when he came into this world, he would take upon himself our sin, our shame. See, what happens oftentimes when we find ourselves going through difficult times No matter what our response is, oftentimes our response is that we feel very forgotten. We feel like God's forgotten us. We feel like God has somehow just dropped the ball on us. Sometimes we even feel like others forget about us. Sometimes we feel forsaken, that people actually turn their backs upon us, like they don't understand the pain I'm going through. They don't understand the loss that I've suffered. Therefore, they just kind of turn and they walk away. They don't know what to do. They don't, they don't know how to respond to somebody. In a lot of ways, it's like Job's comforters. I mean, here's Job going through this incredibly difficult time most of us are familiar with, and none of his friends really know how to react to Job. So they, they kind of do what a lot of us do. They just start making up a bunch of stuff. They're like, well, you know, maybe, maybe the reason why you got scabs all over your body and all your family died is because maybe God's mad at you. Like, thank you? That's not helping. Like, that makes me feel worse. And, and we, Job probably felt even more lonely. Like, like, I'm forsaken. I'm forgotten by God. But the reason why we can confidently say, The reason why I think Naomi was 
wanting to have, why, why Boaz gave Naomi this grain was so that Naomi would have a confidence that Naomi, even though we've kind of hit this little speed bump, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. There's a lot of legal ramifications we got to work through. we got to figure out, you know, Mr. No-Name's placement in this whole scenario. But no matter what's going to happen, I want you to understand you are not empty and you are not forgotten even though you might feel like it. So I would imagine, even though, again, the story tells us none of this. So I don't want to read too much in the story, but again, I think, I wonder, if as soon as Naomi and Ruth found out about this little hiccup in the whole plan, if they were, you know, maybe even Ruth was kind of like, you got to be kidding me, right? Like, I work hard all day, all throughout the day, harvesting all this grain. I've traveled 60 miles on foot, following my, my, my mother-in-law here, and, you know, I've endured a bunch of, you know, hardship and, like, you know, attacks or whatever, bad looks from all sorts of other people. This has not been an easy life for me, and it seems as if God set this whole stage, and all of a sudden, in a moment, his whole dream could be lost. She could have become totally cynical, totally been like, this is it. I'm done with Bethlehem. I'm going back to Moab. But instead... Again, the story doesn't tell us any details about this, but we do know that she stays in there. I think what we learned from this very carefully and clearly is that Boaz wanted to make certain that Naomi was not forsaken and not forgotten. She had not been utterly forsaken and forgotten. The reason why you and I today can place ourselves in that same storyline even though we may be suffering, even though we may have a lot of questions as to what's going on in our lives, we can confidently say we are not utterly, ultimately forsaken and forgotten. The reason why we know this is because Jesus on the cross himself was forsaken for us. Jesus on the cross himself for us took our shame the trajectory of sin, sin what it does for us. It sets us on a path, on a course that leads us away from God. This is why sin is bad. You gotta understand this. God doesn't just simply say stop sinning because I'm controller of the universe and I love seeing people jump when I say jump. That's not why God gives commands. God gives commands because he says I'm God and I'm life giver and only in me is their life. And should you take a path or choose a course that is deplete of me, that is without me, that is apart from me, God says then you will find your life walking on a path that leads to death and destruction. And God says I love you too much to let you keep walking on that path. But if you keep going on that path and you keep persisting to push me away, then that path will ultimately lead to a place of utter forgetfulness where you will be utterly forgotten, utterly forsaken. And yet Jesus comes as perfect God and he actually takes that path, not because of his own sin. He takes our sin upon himself and on the cross, he's forsaken. He cries out to his father and for the first time in the history of all things, there's silence. God didn't respond. He did this for us. And as a result of that, now we know for certain, we can have a confidence that even though we may feel forsaken, we may 
feel forgotten. We may feel as if we are without. We have lost all things. The message of the Bible is that's really not true. So the last final things I want to conclude with are these. I think what this story teaches us is that, first of all, one, we are never fully empty. Never fully empty. I know this is hard for us because we live in a world where we have a lot, all right? We live in California, all right? We have a lot. I mean, for us, going without means we don't have internet for a day, all right? It's like, oh my gosh, I'm suffering. I can't get online. You know, it's just like, I don't know what, it's, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And the, the reality is, is, you know, to some degree, there's a lot of truth to that. And we feel as if we have just lost everything if, you know, we, we don't get 128 channels on television. Like, we're just stuck with the, the typical, like, local ones. Like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is all we got. I have nothing. My life is worthless. And the reality is that we oftentimes compare ourselves to others around us who have everything. And we think, I have nothing. But the reality is, is that we never have nothing. We really don't. We may think we do. We never really truly do. The second thing we learn is that we are never truly forgotten. That God is always thinking, concerned, caring. God demonstrates his care and his love and his kindness to us in so many different ways. And finally, we see that we are never really without any evidences of God in our lives. Never. God has ways of always demonstrating and showing his kindness to us in so many different ways. So many different ways. Oftentimes that could be the, through the form of people who love us and care for us. One of the things that we try to do as a family, uh, usually when we have dinner, we sit around a table, uh, like probably most families do, and uh, we talk, and one of the things that we do is every night as we're around there, we're like, okay, let's, let's talk about some evidences of God's grace in our lives. Uh, we watched um, a TV series you know, a few months back, and we were, kind of went through all of them on, uh, the, the, I don't know, the internet, whatever that we were watching. Uh, you guys ever seen that program, Monk? Yeah, he's a detective. Guy's like just psycho, crazy guy. And, um, you know, they're always like, there's times it's, it's a detective scene. You know, they're trying to dust and trace, trying to find fingerprints and all that. Well, the idea of like trying to understand evidences of God's grace is like dusting for God's fingerprints. Where is God working in my life? Even though it doesn't feel like it, even though things are hard, how, how can I learn to be a good detective for God, to see God in my life, even in moments where it seems as if he may not be uh, detectable? But knowing that God's there, we've got to learn to somehow dust for God's fingerprints, to see where God is moving, what God is doing in our lives. Because if we can't do that, if all we're simply doing is focusing on everything that's wrong, that what ends up happening, in a lot of ways, we're, we're not letting the Spirit of God work in us the way that Jesus says the Spirit of God is to do. He's, he's to remind us of Jesus. He's to remind us of God's handiwork in our lives. And I think as the Spirit works in our lives, He's causing us to see, here's where I'm working. This is what I'm doing. I showed up here. I did this for you here. I took care of the circumstance here. I'm always working in your life all the time. And I think that's what Boaz wanted to make sure that Naomi knew. It's a setback. This wasn't scripted. We didn't expect for this to happen. 
But I'm sure at the end of the day, God has a plan and his purposes aren't going to be thwarted. It's a setback for us, but not for God. God's at rest. So I think the way that we find some sense of stability in our lives is we look to what God has done for us on the cross. We remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel, what Jesus accomplished for us, that if God went to such great lengths to restore, to redeem us who are fallen and broken, how much more will God care and work through our own personal and national ground zeros to help us, to strengthen us, to bring beauty from those ashes, to bring life out of death, to bring some sort of resurrection even out of the grave. That's what God was doing through Christ. This is why, at the end of the day, we love Jesus. This is what Jesus was all about. This is what he came to proclaim. This is what he came to teach us, that in him, through him, through his power, through his life, through his resurrection, through the impartation, the giving, the gift of his Holy Spirit to us, life can also flow to us. We can also be given that life and we can love God, find strength from God and keep moving forward, even in the midst of great blessing, but also in the midst of great loss. That's how the gospel helps us. It's not just simply given so that we live our lives in a better way here and now. It's given so that even when life challenges us and sin affects us, we grieve. But we grieve as people who don't have hope. We grieve as people who have hope. We look to Jesus. I'm going to finish up right now. I'm going to pray. And um, I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And we're going to respond. And one of the things that we do a lot is we do worship at the end. We do it at the end because God's word is a revelation to us. We receive things from God. God speaks to us. But then what we do is we, uh, we worship in response. So it's revelation and we respond. Revelation and response to God. And we're going to respond to God. And we respond by singing. We respond by partaking of communion. We respond maybe even by giving our tithes, our offerings, our money, we can put it in a donation box. We respond by confessing sin. And uh, we do that because God is worthy. And God wants us. God calls us. His message is good news. And we want to respond to that. We want to worship God accordingly to that. And we want our worship to be in at least some sort of proportionate way. That if God really has done all this great stuff for us, then how should our worship be in response back to him? Sometimes worship's hard because even when we find our own tragic personal ground zeros and we have not been given any answers, why? And yet we worship God even in the midst of those tears, in the midst of that sorrow, and we Love him nonetheless, even though we don't understand his purposes yet, because they've not been unfolded to us yet. We can know that God's purposes for us are always good. Why? Because what God did to his son, Jesus was crushed, Jesus rose, and Jesus is rising, raising crushed people to follow him. We've got a future and a hope. I'm going to pray, we'll sing.
respond. Jesus, thank you for the cross. And God, right now, we just want to respond to you, confess sin to you, confess disbelief to you, and we confess our cynicism and maybe even our anger and our pain, our disillusionment. God, we recognize that those emotions, as raw and as primal as they are, they're also dehumanizing and they break us. They destroy us along with others around us. That's not how you want us to live. So God, I, I pray right now that you would just bring cleansing to our hearts and that you would wash us and bring us to the cross. Help us to see Jesus who suffered and when he suffered, he suffered well. So God, I pray right now that we would just we'd run to you, we'd find comfort in you, that we would see you as our, as our shelter and we'd see you as our good shepherd who loves us. So we just commit our our time of worship and song and response to you.